Season 2, Episode 2, Dr. Jeremy Balenson and Experience on Demand, Part 2, or as I like to call it, No Shoes, No Shirt, No Dice! The VR Podcast. Your realm for all things immersion tech in education and business. Prepare to be transported. The following is our continuing conversation with Dr. Jeremy Balenson and his book, Experience on Demand. Something else that came out last year, and we, we've kind of talked about it uh, in our group, uh, all fair and stuff, is um, you spent a long, long time researching this, but we just now are starting to see some uh, data come out to the masses, whereas before it may have been journals and things like that. But one of the things that we saw was, I believe that you uh, and Stanford VR did a kind of a partnership with Common Sense Media uh, to do their, I guess, their um, uh, their white paper that they had released. Uh, can you talk to us about that and like what that process was like about what and what's all included in those data sets? Yeah, yeah. So my, my journey into understanding the developmental trends of VR are a lot of it are because there's a brilliant woman named Jackie Bailey. She's now a professor at the University of Texas. And she came to the lab saying, I want to study kids in VR. And so a lot of the academic research, it's really Jackie's the genius that, that did that work. And, and um, she's, you know, a, an author on that report as well. Uh, but Common Sense Media, you know, they are... Uh, bring perspective about media uh, and and frankly uh, just muscle in the space in terms of really you know getting getting things done uh, and you know it's the kind of thing that I don't think I would have done on my own if I hadn't gotten to partner with them they also you know we they've got some internal researchers that are quite good um, so uh, anyway so we put this report together and, and you know unfortunately the the main punchline of the report is that there hasn't been a ton of academic research on this or even or even you know large-scale industry research that we can that we can trust I mean it's not uh, it's not that there's I'm not judging the quality of anyone's work there's just not much out there Correct. and so yeah. what we know I mean you mentioned the false memory study that 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 I talk about and that this is uh, Catherine Segovia who now teaches at Stanford in the design school this is her her work when she was a grad student now, that's a that's a great study but it's a very small sample and it hasn't you know no one's tried to replicate it yet and uh, you know uh, it's we uh, we just don't know that much about kids. I mean, Jackie's research, I mean, the good news on young kids, Jackie's now run hundreds and hundreds of kids who are either three, four, five, or six years old. So when we started doing this work, um, we partnered with Sesame Workshop because they wanted to be way ahead of the curve with VR and just to figure out what does their content look like in VR and, and how can they advise, you know, people that had asked them about it. And so we wanted to look with, work with their demographic and they wanted us to go uh, down as low as two years old. Uh, but we mostly work with four, five, and six years old. And then we did a separate study with three-year-olds. The good news is in the hundreds of subjects that we've run, you know, no one's gotten hurt, no one's reported 
eye strain. No mothers have called back and said our kids have been having nightmares. No one was crying when they were uh, hysterically after the experience. So the good news, if you keep it to about five minutes and they're meeting Grover uh, or Elmo in VR, you know, so far we haven't found any ill effects. And so I think that's good news with a capital G. That's, that's really neat. Um, of course, what our research has shown is that in general with these young kids, um, they when you give them an experience in VR and they meet Grover um, and uh, later on uh, they're asked about Grover the, the or, or they're asked to uh, even give Grover some of their own possessions. So the way the study works is that they meet Grover either in VR or they meet Grover on TV. Then they take the goggles off and we give them 10 stickers and kids love stickers. And we say, you know who else loves stickers? Grover. How many do you want to give back to him? And uh, when they've met Grover in VR, they're more likely to share stickers with them than when they've seen him on TV. <laughs> uh, and there's other, there's other measures we look at that are kind of more from a neuroscience standpoint about how people can in inhibit a response. Um, and basically across the, the research that Jackie's done, when people meet Grover or Elmo in VR, it's, it's a, it's a, this won't surprise you guys having done a bunch of VR. Uh, it's a much more compelling experience that causes them to be influenced more compared to when it's on TV. Wow. So, so it sounds like the VR is really in, influencing generosity and familiarity and even in some of the, the, our youngest students. Well, VR, VR puts a gain factor on everything, right? It goes from a media experience to more like an actual experience. And, and, you know, the, the, you know, the people always ask, you know, the question I get a lot is from people is, does VR produce empathy? And I say, well, VR is a medium. It produces its desired effect. It really depends on what you build. Like you would never ask, does the medium of a podcast cause empathy? You'd say, well, that depends on what we say on the podcast. Right. And, right. um, and so, you know, I think the smart way to think about VR as a pertains to kid, when experience is done in VR, it's amplified compared to if it was on a 2D screen that didn't have interactive body tracking and, and stereoscopic vision and, and all of these other components that make VR special. And then if you want to figure out the effect, it's just you know putting some type of a constant that magnifies the effect uh, if it were on a 2D screen. And then you got to delve deeper in that. But you know the, 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 if there's a take-home lesson from the Common Sense Media Report, it's that we just don't know. But in general, I mean, I, I use common sense for, you know, finding, you know, finding age restrictions, right? Um, it sounds like for, you know, for VR and AR, it, if it's small enough doses, it's probably okay for kids as, as early as three and four years old. So I have a seven-year-old and a four-year-old, and they've each done VR, I'd say five or six times each time for three or four minutes. And, and that's what I personally was comfortable with as a parent. So um, yeah. my kids are fine and, you know, everyone's got to figure out what they want to do on their own. I will say that the, you know, cause I talked to being in the Valley and, and at Stanford, you know, we interact a lot with the tech companies. It's part of the job description. Um, and, you know, the, a number of the big companies while they were deciding on their age range, they talked to me about uh, helping them figure this out. And ultimately um, the decision, Decisions that were made about age ranges for a lot of these big tech companies were based less on things like safety and more about just those kind of norms of their platform. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I found that, um, you know, for some of the youngest, you know, maybe not having the strap for, say, a VR experience, but being able to just take it off if they need to or put it, back, put it right down quickly is, a, you know, something that's probably beneficial for some of our youngest, um, youngest students. 
Yeah, I, I, look, a little bit goes a long way. Um, yep. I'm doing science night for my my local school here at Redwood City, where I will give in a four hour window. I'm going to give you know 300 kids a VR experience, and each one's going to be in there for about 15 to 20 seconds, and they're going to love it. And they're going to talk about it with their family, and they're going to remember it. And then a little bit's enough. Yep. Jeremy, I had a question. You talked about VR amplifying experiences and just with things like the Oculus Quest uh, announced and coming out hopefully soon. Uh, when we get to, you know, uh, critical mass and saturation from the consumer side, can you talk a little about social implications and maybe some things, if you could take the contrarian side of it, what we should be concerned about and look out for, just be aware of? Well, this is probably, uh, I can segue into yeah. my augmented reality research if that's, <clears throat> that's going to, because I, I really yeah. think, because um, uh, the Quest, which which is amazing, uh, and I don't work for Oculus or Facebook, but uh, <laughs> if you guys have tried the Quest, I mean, it's just, you know, something about being untethered and, and the slam algorithms working from multiple rooms, boy, it was just a special device. Yeah. Uh, um, so I, 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 so just as a side note, I was fairly blown away by that, and I wasn't expecting to be as blown away, uh, so that was neat. Um, but to me, when I think about the social, mm. you know, costs to VR, I think you know what's going to a more natural home to that discussion is going to be augmented reality. Um, there's a reason why the companies have got you know nine and ten figure budgets behind AR. It's because you know in theory you can be using AR all the time, all day long, uh, and that's going to work for the business models better because they can sell mm. more advertisements and sell subscription services and things of that nature. So you know the the companies are fired up about AR have been for some time. Um, you know when we think about the world and think about how much people having their smartphones has just utterly changed the world in terms of walking down the streets, uh, whether you're in New Orleans or, or New York City or, or in San Francisco. I mean, it's just phones have just changed the way people exist in public. Um, AR is going to take that to the, the, the ultimate next level. And so we've been doing a lot of research in my lab. We, um, um, uh, I did a demo about a year and a half um, where I got to see you wearing the Microsoft HoloLens. Mm. I got to see a very realistic human avatar that was a recording. So it wasn't a real time beaming of someone. It was a recording, but my, my clever graduate student, he basically practiced so that he stood next to the recording that he couldn't see because I was wearing the HoloLens <laughs> and he had a conversation with this agent verbally and non-verbally and he spent a lot of time practicing this. So basically what I saw from the HoloLens and I was far away so the whole thing appeared in my field of view was a beamed in virtual agent talking to a physical person in the room and it flowed beautifully verbally and non-verbally. Okay, so I got to see the future oh, of... Yeah, it's it's it, and you know I've been I've been I've been seeing AR demos for 20 years and I hadn't had this kind of jaw dropping experience yet the same way that you know when I first walked the plank in VR that 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 I had and this was that I I I I, I can't tell you how much seeing a person beamed into my space and seeing that person talking to another it just blew my mind so we've since written and received two big National Science Foundation grants where for the next three years we're going to be studying the social reaction to you basically the social issues around the use of AR and some of our studies are looking at you know how do others perceive you when you're wearing things like the magic leap and the HoloLens in public so you know the term glass hole from when uh, we had the Google Glass you know there you know uh, there it's surprisingly there is you know some anthropological work around this but there had there weren't any studies around that and so why was there this intense negative reaction to Google Glass uh, we don't know yet um, but we're trying to study this now in terms of uh, of understanding the same thing with 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 uh, with 
current type devices. Um, the thing that's more exciting to me is if you think about a world, we're at a cocktail party, all right? And in this cocktail party, 30 people are there and 15 of them are wearing HoloLens. And what they're seeing in the HoloLens is they're all having other guests beamed in, okay? Mm -hmm. And um, so the other guests are beamed in and maybe only half of the people in the HoloLens get to see certain guests, whereas others are public for everyone. Um, but regardless of that, you know, how do you spread your attention around the room when there's physical and virtual people there? You know, we're running a study right now where we're demonstrating that you will basically, you will violate somebody's personal space physically to avoid violating the personal space of an augmented reality human. In other words, wow. you don't want to walk through the AR human, so you're willing to get closer to a physical person in the room. And Thanks. how does this work at scale? And it just gets really kind of strange and out there. That is, um, do you think it's like some type of like subconscious etiquette that you're more willing to uh, accommodate the, the technology versus somebody that can be more, I guess, malleable? <laughs> Um, in person that I don't, you know, this, this projected being is something that I'm not comfortable with. Therefore I'm going to walk away with it. I'm more comfortable with a human being and being shoulder to shoulder or bumping into yeah. a, right. a real human as opposed to walking in front of a virtual one. Right. Yeah. So you guys are three amazing possible explanations. Uh, you know, <laughs> when we do this work, we, we begin by demonstrating the effect. And then what we do is we chisel away with additional studies to kind of underlie the, find out the mechanism. So we just, we're just submitting, we're in about a month, we'll be publishing a pair, our first really big high impact paper in the AR space. And it's a, it's a three study paper that look at all, all these social in, in interactions and showing how the world changes pretty drastically when, when, when AR comes to play. But none of of them, um, to the chagrin of the reviewers of the of this journal article, uh, really give us the insights into the mechanism as why they're more about demonstrating these effects. And, and now what we're going to do is chase them down. But yeah, there's all sorts of mm -hmm. uh, possible explanations. You know, my faculty mentor here at Stanford, his name was Cliff Nass. He passed away a few years back. Cliff uh, has a famous book called The Media Equation. And The Media Equation um, talks about how, in general, people treat digital things in a way that they take this template of politeness um, and they mindlessly apply it to uh, digital things. And so the explanation that, that, uh, that you guys brought up uh, really falls into Cliff's old work on you, you've got this automatic way you treat things that are sufficiently person-like. It primes your you know, person social template and then you automatically apply that to, the, to these creatures. And so, you know, in a world where we mindlessly treat AR agents as if they were real and the world is just littered with them and we lose common ground where, you know, the one that I'm seeing, maybe you're seeing, maybe not. And the person who's not wearing the goggles, she's certainly not seeing any of them. You know, what happens when you're at the cocktail party and you're trying to talk to your buddy who's beamed in and then somebody just walks right up and steps right on the person and actually shares body space with them, right? How do you react to that? Do you ask the person to move because they stepped on your virtual friend? <laughs> it's kind of like when, when, whenever you're in, uh, if you're in uh, retail and somebody walks in and they're, and you think they're talking to you, but it's just the Bluetooth headset uh, that they're speaking to. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. Now they're going to be gesturing and moving their hands and pointing <laughs> at stuff and perhaps grabbing shared objects. It just gets really weird really fast at scale. I just want to throw something out there, and I don't work for them, but I really like uh, North. They're formerly Thalmic Labs. They have the focal glasses right that are out now. And if uh, Jeremy Benson, if you want to do a study with the three of us, give us the <laughs> focal glasses. We'll tell you how distracted we are when we are getting text messages in our eyes, distracting and not paying attention to the human <laughs> being right next to us. Yes. Yeah. It's, I, I... <laughs> 
it's going to be complicated. It's it's mm. the, the norms right now because you have to reach in your pocket and pull out your phone. Mm. You know, some people are still willing to be rude in front of you, and uh, but you know mm. when the stuff is. I can't tell whether you're looking at your, uh, your materials. It's, it's going to be a strange world. Now, that being said, the benefits of AR will be massive, and, and so you know. The, 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 so I'm not I'm not trying to sound like an AR hater. Uh, quite the contrary, I, I think that if there's something that's going to solve climate change, it's going to be able to beam people in uh, in a really compelling way, so that I don't have to fly across the country for meetings. And I, and I think that you know I, I would have thought that social VR was the answer to that, and I still do. But mm-hmm. I'm telling you that. What I saw having somebody beamed in in AR and that person was standing, you know, in a spot in my room and other, it, it just, I, I really think AR is going to help this uh, in terms of reducing fossil fuel use. Well, isn't that, that was the promise of Star Wars, wasn't it? I mean, that we could send messages and we could communicate in AR. I mean, come on. Yeah, it's, 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 it's finally coming to fruition. Yeah, I'm loving it. It's kind of like uh, I grew up loving Dick Tracy, and I always loved the watch, the watch communicator. Now I have it, so <laughs> I'm looking forward to being able to see uh, Stephen and Alex and Amanda in augmented reality doing our podcast one day. That would be a beautiful thing to me. Yeah, maybe one day. Yeah, it might be next week. Who knows? I mean, things move right. so so quickly. So, uh, and I want to communicate back to our audience. We're here with Dr. Jeremy Balenson, Stanford professor and author of Experience on Demand. And I kind of want to bring up the fact that I believe last week, and correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Balenson, last week, the paperback came out. Is that correct? It did. That's awesome. And I I think I saw it on social media. And I believe that you can get it um, where I get all my books. I'm not advertising for Amazon. It just seems to be a lot easier for me to get it from there. But I'm sure that uh, it's available pretty much anywhere um, that you want to get books. Um, And of course, I don't actually get physical books. I did get the hardcover book of this, but I was telling, uh, telling the rest of the crew, I've never cracked it open because I read my Kindle and I listened to my audible um, of your book. Um, And I think that it is a beautiful read. And one thing that I really want to share, and it it was very impactful for me in the book, was that there's an index. And I know that sounds really corny to people, but if you want to find certain things in the book, it's got an index for almost everything from Star Trek to health. It's in there. If it's mentioned in the book, it's in the index. I mean, it seemed like the index is actually a reiteration of the book just in um, alphabetical order. Um, so, uh, I find that I'm not, not only am I entertained by this book and am I finding it, finding it informative, but I can use it as a reference book too. So if people really want to understand and have a go-to guide for understanding VR, this book is it. Some of those features that James just mentioned, I think would make it great for a, uh, a textbook in an introductory, you know, VR, AR course, um, at a college. But and and Jeremy, a lot a lot of our um, a lot of our listeners are teachers or educational technologists or IT directors. Uh, I also think this is something that they should have in their library. Um, is there you know is there any advice that you have for let's say teachers that are thinking about getting into virtual reality uh, and augmented reality and thinking about ways of integrating into the classroom? Um, do you have any advice for people that are just getting started besides, you know, obviously getting a pick, getting a copy of experience on demand and reading it from the front 
all the way to the back and, uh, and noting all the great examples in there. Yeah, I, I have one very tangible piece of advice, and this comes from a, a dissertation I oversaw by a guy named Brian Perone, who uh, now works at Facebook in their social VR division. Uh, his dissertation looked at a VR integrated inside of, of classrooms, and one thing we found early on um, is that in general, you know, kids can sometimes be a little bit... Uh, uh, they can pick on each other, and, you know, as... Um, you guys probably know quite well. It's pretty hard to look cool when you're doing VR, right? You're uh, <laughs> grabbing the stuff that's not there. You're jumping around. And um, we actually found that, you know, especially kids who weren't as popular as the other kids, that there was a little bit of, of kind of making fun of them while they were in VR. So we actually came up with a system to separate them and, and to kind of give them their own space when they were doing VR. And so that's a, uh, you know, a, a, a tangible lesson. I think that, you know, you know, p- people instantiate differentially, but in terms of my, hands-on advice. I think watching that is is an important one. Um, And then, you know, I I think trying out content. So it's, you know, I'm I'm a VR guy and and even I get frustrated by the process of having to download different platforms onto different hardware. So what I'm saying is not easy um, because it it isn't trivial if you own a device to be able to try out 15, 20, 30 different demos on it. But but I, I think there's a lot of content out there. And if I were a teacher and I wanted to, you know, bring VR in, I would make sure that I found the perfect, you know, not the perfect, let's not, let's not let the perfect be the enemy of the good, but something that was really good and that fit into my lesson. And there's probably more than one demonstration of how the planets revolve around one another, or sorry, revolve around the sun and how the moons revolve around the planet. So don't necessarily feel like you have to use one. There's lots of content out there and find one that works. Yeah, I like that. And having read the the book, and I think this ties in directly with what you're saying there, is that um, once you've got the setup, once you have the logistics down, the one thing that I took away from Experience on Demand was that we are to use VR for the impossible, rare, dangerous, counterproductive, or expensive. And so when I talk about this and when I speak to others about what we should we use it for uh, and when, it's always for those reasons. Um, so that I really love that about the book. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I've been... There's no perfect acronym for them, but I've been using <laughs> DICE recently. Oh. DICE. Dangerous, impossible, rare. No, dangerous, dangerous, impossible, counterproductive, or expensive. DICE. Ah, DICE. DICE. Okay. I like, I like that. it now. That's yeah, definitely the, going on a tweet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag DICE. The, the um because rare and expensive I, I used to keep them as two separate categories but they're basically the same thing right mm-hmm. if something's rare you can pay a lot of money for it so i right. it wasn't it wasn't earning its keep to separate those so i'm dangerous impossible counterproductive or expensive that's that's dice You can connect with Dr. Balenson on Twitter, and correct me if I'm wrong, I believe that it's at Stanford VR. Is that correct, Dr. Balenson? Yes, sir. That that's It's a great follow, uh, so make sure you connect on there. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Balenson. Uh, it, was, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. I appreciate you coming on, and we would love to have you back anytime that you would give us some time to to talk and i know that 
if there's any time that we could connect with you in person, we would love to do that too. Because while it's great to connect digitally and virtually, there's no replacement for real world connection. So, yeah, well, let me just thank you guys for doing such a great job and the due diligence and the kind words. And, and also for, you know, I follow you guys on Twitter and uh, we'll continue to read what you're writing. And thanks for the work that you do. Man, that's awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you. I also you. want to thank Stephen and Alex for joining in today. And I want to thank our listeners for joining us on this awesome journey today. And if you liked our conversation, don't forget to check out our other episodes. And we want you to also join in on the conversation. So use uh, the hashtag VR podcast. You can ask questions, comment on VR, emerging technology, especially about this episode. And you can reach out to Dr. Balenson and ask him some questions on Twitter too. He'll respond. Or even about the virtual reality podcast. See ya. Want to hear more or connect with us? Subscribe to the podcast and find us on social media at The VR Podcast.